welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today, all the way from New York, I have Christopher Zara with me. Um, I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about what's brought him on today. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Thank you, Tara, for having me. Um, Yes, my name is Christopher Zara and I am a senior editor at Fast Company magazine in New York City. Um, I recently wrote a memoir called Uneducated, and it's about um, my journey uh, navigating the white collar professional world uh, without a college degree um, and with really (laughs) no, uh, not a lot of schooling at all. So it's, it's a, it's a book about how uh, education is this powerful um, defining characteristic in our society, whether you, uh, whether you have a proper education or not. So that's the book I just wrote. It's called Uneducated. um, And that's what brought me on today. And you have really interesting backstory that we're going to delve into as well. Um, But also, particularly, we're going to bring in social anxiety. So some of the kind of extraneous things that might have impacted you and how you function in your career. Um, So I think actually those things are going to flow really nicely for listeners. So if you're comfortable, Mm -hmm. do you mind telling us a little bit about your kind of journey with education? Because those kind of early years weren't easy for you, were they? Yeah, no, they they were not. So um, I was actually not a bad student um, in the first couple of years of of school. I went to Catholic school, Catholic school in in, um, up until about, uh, I think it was fourth grade is when I stopped Catholic school. And the rules of Catholic school kept me in line (laughs) pretty well. And uh, I was so afraid to get in trouble as as, as a little kid that I I didn't, uh, I was very quiet and didn't break the rules. Um, And and things moved along pretty nicely. I started to um, have issues with keeping up with other students, I think probably around um, middle school, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and by high school, uh, I was started. I was really failing as as a student. I was getting right. all all D's. Um, uh, you know, certain subjects were fine, but like there would there was a lot of I had a lot of issue with uh, reading with um, spelling. You know, just basic stuff like yeah. that, and um, I guess, uh, you know, that sort of coincided with a um, a, a personality um, conflict where I started to, to act out. Um, you know, I had been picked on a lot of, and when I was a younger kid. And then when I got uh, older, okay. when, I was, when I went through the teenage years, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I started to act out a lot. I, 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 I mouthed off the teachers. I, I, let, I set things on fire. I did a lot of things you're not supposed to do in school. And in, in high school, by I'd say 11th by 11th grade they were done with me and they uh, eventually just told me not to come back um told my mom they didn't want me back and so right. I was essentially ejected from high school um I got sent to a special school after that it was a, a special what they call special education um here right. in the, here in the US there's certain conditions you can be certain classifications that get you the special education and, and for me they it was emotionally disturbed is what the uh, label right. they, they use. The language great... is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible language. No one likes that yeah. term. Um, yeah. Even today, it's still used at the federal level um, to classify children, really? and, and no one seems to like it. it. It it has a checkered backstory in terms of like how this term got into use and the actual yeah. clinical definition of it. But for some reason, they still use it. This is like yeah. you know, I went to school in the eighties, and this is like you know. 35 years later and, <laughs> and still they're still at. using yeah absolutely um and you know just I, i'm also thinking the impact of that on a young person to have that label what it you know does to their image their self-esteem self-worth 
Yeah, it wasn't great. And um, the, the, the school they send you to, like the, the special school or the special education school, is even worse than the regular high school. It's right. basically like if you imagine all the kids who get kicked out of the regular high school, put yeah. them all in the same school together, and then people wonder why there's problems. Well, it's because you, you know, essentially took all these kids who um, you didn't want to deal with in the regular school setting and yeah. placed them all together. And they all, a lot of these kids like myself had um, uh, behavioral issues and things like that. So I didn't last very long at the special school. It was, I was only there for a couple of months and I just stopped going to that. So basically got kicked out of two high schools that year. Um, and that was the end of school for me. I, 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 I got a GED, which is what basically like a certificate in the, in the United States. It's, um, it's the equivalent of, of a diploma, but, but that's about as far as I went, I took some classes at community college here and there, but I, I really didn't, um, do much else in school. And it wasn't unusual. I was from a neighborhood where that was pretty normal. Um, yeah. A lot of, I knew a lot of kids actually that didn't finish high school in my neighborhood. So like from my own perspective at that time, like I didn't think there was anything even that different about it. It wasn't until I started working in, in media and in journalism where most people, 90% of people are, have gone through, you know, colleges and universities. Is that wow. Is that in the U.S.? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I've actually recently been writing about the differences between the UK and and the US oh, in terms of like yeah. uh, in terms of like graduate uh, levels in certain industries and in media in our country it's uh it's super rare now to have professional journalists without college level education. It didn't used to be the newspaper yeah. business used to be pretty working class. Like, you know, in the, if you go back 30, 40, 50 years, um, it wasn't unusual. My, my mom worked in the newspaper business. Um, Did she? And, yeah, she was not a journalist. She worked at the, in the data processing side. But, but she knew it. She said a lot of the newspaper writers at that, at that time, it was not unusual for them to not have college degrees. But nowadays it is very unusual, and I, and it was one of the things that struck me when I got into the business how that I was basically this anomaly. And and do you know are there reasons why? You know, in your research, have you managed to uncover anything as to what's caused that shift? Yeah, a few a few different things. Um, one one of the things that changed, interestingly enough, is that the newspaper business and the news business wasn't seen as that glamorous. Um, right. So it was it was a it was a working class industry. It really still is in a lot of ways. You don't make a ton of money, but it became it to be seen as more glamorous right around the time of the um, Watergate scandal, yeah, um, in the early seventies, and especially the movie that came out, um, All the President's Men, uh, starring uh, Robert Redford. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, yeah, that that actually inspired a younger generation of kids to want to be journalists I, i'm not going to attribute all of the shift to that one movie yeah, that, of course. that was one part of how we started to see this shift um there were there are a lot of other factors a lot of industries at that time were becoming more educated in general so there was just this shift toward yeah. um focusing on the college degree as a proxy for people's abilities and people's qualifications. Yeah. And that happened in not just journalism, but a lot of different businesses throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and into the 2000s. So um, by the time, you know, 2000 rolls around or, or 2005 rolls around, it's it's pretty much 90% of um, journalists wow. at this point, based on surveys they've done. Um, but the, yeah, one of the shifts was the journalism business became glamorous and journalism schools, um, courted them in, in a yeah. way that they, you know, there was a sort of, uh, the, the way journalism schools would talk about, uh, the business as it, as if it were this higher calling and it, it required this sort of specialized training, um, marketing. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely <laughs> definitely a lot of marketing involved, and and I like to I like to sort of um, preface my some of what I say about this with the the uh, the fact that like I, I actually I'm, I'm not anti college at all. In fact, I like I would like. Well, I was going to ask that. So it's interesting you brought that up. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, I like if it, if I had my way, like I would love to go back and go to uh, Columbia J School. Like I live near the Columbia University campus. Right. It's beautiful. Um, and it, it's a it's a question of opportunity in, in a lot of ways. Like I, I, I talk about the subject and people will sometimes yeah. stop me and say, but, you know, you know, why should why should we why should society open up? you know, these industries to people with, who don't feel like the training, the proper training is, is like a worthy goal. And, and yeah. you know, I like to stop yeah. people there and say, um, I do think it's a worthy goal. Um, I think the, I think the question it's interesting is, that's quite an inference, isn't it? Presuming yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's funny because like, you know, I, I wish that, um, I, I wish that I you know, that things could have been different for me. I think there's a lot of people who feel that th the problem is not people having college as an, as an option. The problem is that yeah. college is the only option and not everyone has the access to college. Not everyone studies well in, in a classroom setting. Yeah. So many things I want to ask you there. So I'm going yeah. with it organically because we have a lot of things on the list don't we yeah, but, I think so that's I might really be rambling <laughs> no absolutely not this is so interesting so isn't it so when we're just looking at trends so you know I'm obviously as a psychologist I have a certain level of education there are certain things I have to have in order to practice so mm -hmm. there's some careers I guess where unfortunately there are these you know barriers if you like rules yeah. frameworks and, and and in a way that's understandable um but it's mm -hmm. so interesting isn't it that that presumption then society's presumption or particular industries having a presumption that if you're not going to college that it's about not valuing the career yeah. pathway or the way to get there but it's so interesting there's so many factors that influence how many right. people go to college or university for people in the uk um, and are you comfortable talking about so your student journey then? Because I know this is something you've talked about before on other mm -hmm. podcasts. You know, that experience, you know, the labels you've been given, the difficulties that you had, did you get any support? How do you look back over that time? You know, right from kind of starting school up to when you when you left for the second time? Yeah, I, I mean, I there what I didn't get a ton, there I, I got basically no support from the school. I mean, there was the school system was really crowded and I don't blame yeah. them. I think a lot of the teachers at that time, they just didn't want to deal with the delinquent, yeah. which is what I was. And so I don't blame, it's not like I blame the school, but I do think there yeah. was, there was a systemic issue where it was so crowded and the teachers are all underpaid. They're not really, they're not babysitters. They're not there to, to deal with, yeah, kids like yeah, me who had, points. Yeah. so I, did, I didn't yeah. get a lot of support from the school system um I have a great family but at that time my parents were getting a divorce they were not especially um right. present yeah. either yeah um what's so, going on then yeah so it was for during that period you know this whole thing with this special education I there was no support at all because like I didn't think I needed it yeah. Um, I just figured, okay, that's the end of school. And like, you know, I'm going to go out and live my life now. And I thought it would be, I thought it would be pretty easy. It wasn't until like 10 years later and I'm still working as an ice cream scooper and a, you know, at a, at a Haagen-Dazs, you know, in a shopping mall. And I'm like, what, what am I doing with my life here? Yeah. Is it right to ask a bit about that then? So we've already brought in, I need to hold some of these things to mind for later. Just, you know, looking at the journey you had, the support you had, it didn't have. Um, looking at kind of society's expectations around education, what you need, college in particularly, mm -hmm. um, we'll come on to looking at the shift and, you know, where businesses are heading these days and their views on having a college degree. But what was it like for you then? So in those early days when you left school and you're trying to earn a living, yeah, is that something you're comfortable talking about? And what oh, yeah. that kind of yeah, moment yeah. where you moved into the media industry, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I had some, you know, I had some issues with drugs. Like immediately after high school, there was this whole drug period where I got, you know, I got hooked on um, heroin and this was like, I'm in my right. late teens, early twenties. Um, yeah. So I, I had to leave. I grew up in New Jersey, pretty close to New York city, but far enough away where the city was not part of my everyday life, Yeah. but you could buy drugs real easy in New York city, Philadelphia, all these big cities in the Northeast yeah. at that time. They were like drug dens. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the yeah. early 90s. Um, so I had to leave that area. So I, I left and I went down to um, Orlando, Florida 
to basically to get clean. And while I was down there, I, that's when working life started. I didn't have experience really doing anything. So I just yeah. did yeah. what most people would do, which is I went to, you know, retail stores and applied for jobs. And yeah, yeah. Um, kind and of the door to door methods, you know, I'll go and talk to people yeah. and see what I can get. Yeah. Yeah, there was one point when I would I went to this place called Beefy King, which is it's uh I don't it's like a burger. Now I chain. need to know what that is, right? It's <laughs> I don't think it's very well known outside of Florida, but I remember they didn't even want to hire me. I was like, I'm going to get a job at Beefy King. I was like really embarrassed that I even had to do it. I filled out the application mm -hmm. and they just, they didn't even call me back. It's like I can't even get a call back from Beefy King. Um, so. so when you're thinking about you know your self-worth your self-esteem at that time what when it's all right to ask what was your mental health like at that time so obviously being in recovery from addiction yeah. facing rejection what was that like for you um you know when i was when i got the job at, at the ice cream shop in uh in the shopping mall it actually was not a bad time because yeah. i was looking at it from at least i'm clean and sober yeah and yeah. um that to me was like, I'm doing better than I was two years ago. So yeah. like, I, I always yeah. look at it as like the progression of where were you then? Now, objectively, I was a 28 year old guy scooping ice cream for a living. So that's not, that might not look great on paper. But to me, I, I thought I was doing pretty good because like I had a yeah. regular job, yeah. paid $6 an hour. And like, you know, I, I, I could afford to live on my own. I had a bunch of roommates, I couldn't live lavishly, but um, you had that but, independence. You could maintain, yeah, your lifestyle. Yeah, so I guess you could call it arrested development, or um, I don't know. It's just, you know, it took took a long time for me to realize how um, how you know behind I really was in terms yeah. of like life, like normal life. People twenty eight years old are running companies. You know, people twenty eight years old are doing important things. And here I was in a, in a shopping mall, but I thought I was doing pretty good at that time. So my, my mental health then was, was, was pretty good. It wasn't until probably a few years later when I started to realize this is what my entire life is going to be. I, I have, there's, there's no plan. Like there was. Yeah. Without, I was wondering what, you know, how long were you working in the ice cream place before you decided, you know, what are my next steps? What were you uh, noticing? Um, I you know, I did the ice cream for like three years and then I got like, I got a picture frame job where I was doing picture framing. I actually didn't mind that, you know, you're, you're yeah. building picture frames, but it's still retail. You still have to deal with customers and stuff. Um, I don't, and then I'm like, I'm probably around 32 now. Um, when I'm, when I realize this is, you know, I'm eight years away from 40 and I'm still doing this stuff. So yeah. So that's what that was. That was sort of the wake up call where I realized I had to change direction and I had to figure something out, something new to do. And that's when I decided I would try to um, write for magazines. I pitched a magazine on a story and I got an assignment on the first pitch. And I just to me, wow. that was that was really like yeah. an omen. It was like sort of like the universe saying this is what you're supposed to do. Um, now granted it was beginner's luck and yeah. I, I didn't, I got a lot of no's after that point, but, but that first yes was really, a um, a way that was really a motivating factor for me, for me to get that, you know, someone was it an that, area you were interested in. Is that right? So, you know, was there some value around writing, writing for kind of publication media work or. Yeah. I mean, I just in the sense that I always was told in school, like we, it's it's inter it's ironic that school was such a uh, a bad experience for me. But yeah. I did have a few teachers pull me aside and tell me that I was a good writer and oh, told okay. me. Uh, I knew that this the feedback I was getting from the teachers was not. They weren't just saying it. Like they really thought they would, you know pull me aside and basically say, you know, you, uh, your writing is above average and you, uh, you know, you should pursue this. Like I had teachers tell me that. So I always kind of knew that I was pretty good at, at writing. And I, yeah. and, um, it was the one thing I knew I could kind of, I even looked at it as something I could fall back on at some point. Um, I just didn't know how to make money at it. And so this magazine thing was like, they were only paying me a hundred bucks or $125 for the for the story but to me that was like wow someone wants to pay me to do this yeah 
that's something pretty... you've produced. You've yeah, created. exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, just wondering, you know, what that's like for your self-esteem again, you know, that having that autonomy to write what you want to write and people acknowledging that. Yeah. So it was the first bit of success that I had. And I started to freelance for a little bit. And then I decided I'm going to come to New York City, which is, okay. I've all, I'd always been obsessed with New York City. I grew up close enough that I could visit when I was a teenager. Yeah. I've been a few times. It's just, it's indescribable, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of I'm one of the I'm just one of those people who got so captivated by it I could never leave it. I could never get it out of yeah. my system. I, I moved around a little bit. I went to Orlando, I went to Seattle. Right. Spent, spent some time in Los Angeles. Um but I just couldn't get New York City out of my head. I just knew I wanted to be here and um part of it's because I love the lifestyle of not having to have a car, get to take yeah. the subway. Um, all the things that New Yorkers obsess about. And so I, I think what, when I was 35, I said, I'm just going to go there and try to get a job in journalism. And <laughs> it was really naive thinking that I could do that. But that's what I that's what I did. And I found this internship like the first week I was here Gosh. On, uh, at, at a newspaper called Show Business Weekly, which was one of these actor trade papers for the Broadway. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Like back in the back in that day, you know, back in the old days when actors wanted to get jobs yeah. in theater, they would read these these trade papers, and that's where they'd find all the auditions. And um, the the bad timing in my case was I got there in two thousand five. The the business model for that was already dead. So right. the newspaper was essentially doomed. But I didn't know that. I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm interning at a newspaper called Show Business Weekly. I thought it was so great. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we were also going to bring in today was around social anxiety, which I'd read had begun to show up the more you were working yeah. in the kind of media industry. Yeah. At that time, you know, when you're suddenly surrounded by people, other writers, how did you find that? How did you find that as a, as a new person on the scene? with your kind of thoughts around your education your history yeah this is when i think social anxiety really started to i, I really realized what it was like ah, you, that's interesting if you live your life a certain way where you can just make sure you're in comfortable situations social anxiety doesn't present itself because you don't yeah. put yourself in those situations where Absolutely. it to, yeah. that, that triggers it so you know, when I came to New York and started working in this business where I really felt like an outsider, it triggered social anxiety and, and on a daily basis in ways that I just didn't anticipate. Yeah. Um, and there are there's, you know, there's some instances like I can remember my first day on the internship where this my boss, I'll call him my boss because he was, but he was like, you know, 12 years younger than me. Um, yeah. He hands me, a, you know, a couple things to edit. He's like, can you edit this? It was my first day there. And I, and I like froze up. I didn't like none of the words made sense. Um, I forgot all the rules of grammar. And it was like, I just thought, wow, I, I, it was like, like this imposter syndrome just took over. Yeah. And I was just like, and that kind of stuff happened a lot where it was like, you know, I, I didn't, I would just freeze up in certain situations and that uh, that social anxiety is the kind of stuff that really hits you when you are in situations where you are not comfortable. And yeah. Do you know what's really interesting? And I think this is a reason why I'm really glad to have you on is that we're kind of demystifying maybe what most people think is social anxiety because a lot of people don't realize Social anxiety is not about socializing with friends. It can yeah. show up in those situations, mm -hmm. but actually it can show up in many different situations that involve being around other people. And in the work setting, I don't think people talk about that enough. Are you comfortable? I do tend to do a bit of a deep dive. What did you notice? How does it feel? So for somebody that I guess will point this podcast as well, there may be people listening who don't know that that's them. You know, what did you yeah. notice in terms of kind of thinking? your body feels emotions you had yeah i mean there's definitely some um symptoms that are common in my case like uh there's a heartbeat thing for example um sit down i yeah. sit down in a meeting and i'm fine in the meeting because it yeah i'm with there with like a bunch of people and everything's okay but when it's my time to talk in the meeting 
all of a sudden uh, yes the heart yeah. jumps up and like not just like speeds up but pounds like and i'm yeah. to the point where i'm i think everyone can see my neck pulsating <laughs> and uh so that happens and that's not pleasant yeah. um i bet there's so many people listening that that will resonate with yeah um, the, you, your handshake um the thing that i think is probably the worst symptom for me is like literally forgetting what you're tr what you're trying to say yeah and the t the syntax of language and all those things that you just that come to you when you're speaking normally they're just kind of like i don't know it's like something comes out yeah. and sucks it out of your mind or something so now all of a sudden you're just standing there i might even have notes and i can't read them because the, the words don't make sense um so those kinds of like things would happen to the extent to where I thought it was beyond the normal um, yeah. nervousness. I know everyone gets nervous. Um, and, and that's important. Glad you brought that in as well. You know, differentiating between a lot of people do experience very natural, normal anxiety in new situations. Yeah. People suddenly speak up in a work meeting. Um, but it's, you know, the kind of intensity, um, frequency of symptoms and how long they hang around for the duration that the important things to keep an eye on. Can I also ask as well, did you notice, how did you behave as a result then? So as a psychologist, what we're quite interesting when we're formulating mm -hmm. with people trying to build yeah. up a picture is when you've got all this, you know, that like, literally that's so, it's such a really powerful image for everyone, isn't it? That idea that your heart is pounding so much, you mm -hmm. literally are expecting people to be able to see your neck pulsating. And then sometimes we begin to then have thoughts about that. Oh no, people are going to look. So you almost have like yeah. a secondary circle of symptoms and worry. Um, and that's obviously important because that actually can maintain the issue we then get fearful next time we're in a meeting or next time we've got to speak up or we're around other people how did it make you behave what did you do to try and cope with that when you're noticing all of this stuff and the words are blurred and you've forgotten what you want to say well there there was a lot of self-judgment i would go th i would do it i'd make myself yeah. do it. i mean you can't yeah. i couldn't run out of a meeting so you have to you have to plow through and then i would um afterwards just berate myself yeah. and um, yeah so i would i would berate myself and right. uh, really um you know treat judge myself harshly as like yeah. you know basically like what is wrong yeah. with you um because i i didn't i don't think i quite knew that this was a, such a common condition i thought there was yeah. like, something seriously wrong with me um later on i Talk, I did talk to a, a doctor about it and I ended up getting this uh, prescribed uh, what's called a beta blocker. Uh, yeah. Um, and this goes back to what you were saying about the fear of the symptoms showing up is yeah. part of the problem. It um, is. Yeah, this, this beta blocker, all it does is really kind of mask some of those symptoms. Like the heartbeat is a lot better when yeah. I think. And you just, you, you take one right before you go into a meeting, you know, you, it's just for, it's really just for performance anxiety. What they, yeah. it's like, I think a lot of musicians take it to keep their hands steady when they're. Um, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. So it really works for that. And what the best thing about it is that like, it doesn't affect your mind at all, but what it does is it gives you the confidence to know that the, the, those symptoms aren't going to be as bad as. They normally would and that that confidence allows you to to then just be yourself so in a way it kind of slows that cycle down or even perhaps breaks yeah. the cycle off and that's something i think that most people might not know about things like social anxiety but also with panic attacks panic disorder um that sometimes that second circle so you might initially notice some symptoms as you say your negative thoughts physical symptoms, your heart pounding, maybe you're noticing that you're feeling anxious, what your emotions are. But then we start to appraise that, don't we? Oh my God, this isn't going to be good. Or what are people going to think of me? Or now I, you know, you say you're berating yourself. What's wrong with you? Come on. And then actually those yeah. symptoms can be, become the thing actually that maintains, they can sometimes be worse than the initial physical symptoms or the initial observations. So, you know, obviously medication is one route. Is there anything else that you've tried, anything else that you've found that works for you? You know, if you've gone through your career, what, what words of wisdom, what nuggets of advice could you give people that might be listening now going, this is me? Because yeah. I think we don't talk about this enough. Uh, I'm gonna, I think, interestingly, I'm just discovering 
now that having written this book yeah. was extremely therapeutic. Right. Um, because yeah. I, you know, part of the part of the book is you know social anxiety and um, imposter syndrome. I feel like an outsider at work because I don't have a college degree. I was so terrified to talk about education at work. Like I was just terrified that someone would. It just the, the subject comes up all the time because, of course, it's a natural yeah. thing for people to talk about. And then people, I just yes. was afraid someone would be like, yeah. "Hey, hey, Zara, where did you go to school?" And then I, it, you know, and then I'd have to say, "Well, you know, I got kicked out of high school, and here we are." <laughs> is that what? So is that all right to ask as well? Then um, again, kind of raw today, aren't we? You know, how have you replied throughout your career? Has it been fairly static that you tell people that story? Have there been times where you felt you don't want to share that? Uh, I, I usually would would say um, you, I, I would say I, I took an unusual path. I would be really vague, yeah. basically. Yeah. I didn't get specific. Um, so I think most people didn't know uh, that you know I would really try to avoid the topic. and yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I was pretty successful at that. I think a lot of people, I'm sure my bosses eventually knew because they they look at your resume, but um, but a lot of people that you work with, it, if it doesn't come up, they don't know. Yeah. And to get back to the original question about what other things I've done to cope, actually, because I wrote the book, I've had to like talk about this topic now so much at work yeah. that um, yeah. I, the fear is gone. And so I guess in a way that that's a way to cope is to actually, I, I think, you know, maybe Talking not. Talking about gonna, it, naming it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. not everyone's going to write a book, but like definitely talking about it seems to help. Um, it's a really a common thing I, with anxiety that we avoid. If I yeah. try and make it go away, try and push those feelings down or maybe distract myself in some way. Um, yeah. But usually yeah. it will pop up. We don't have control of when those negative thoughts are going to pop up. We often don't have control of some of the triggers. Um, but actually, sometimes we refer to that as leaning in. You know, I'm going to lean in and notice yeah. and name, wow, what is this? Wow, there is that really fast heartbeat. And sometimes that can just take the wind out of the sails a little bit, take a bit of the power out. Um, yeah, it's true. I'm saying that, as well. And that's surprising to me because I would have yeah. thought the opposite. I would have well, thought, yeah. Well, yeah, if you talk about it, it's actually acknowledging it and giving it power and that makes it worse. And, and yeah. maybe that's true for some people. And maybe that's true in certain situations or circumstances. But in this case, I have to say, having having to talk about this topic now so much more frequently than I used to, I I, I do feel better about it. Yeah. So I think even now, so obviously you've written your book, but then you'll be on podcasts, you'll be talking in other media outlets, you'll be verbalizing it as well as writing it down. It's actually a really, really good combo. Do you notice, you know, even as we're talking now, is it all right to ask, you know, do you notice anything different when you're talking about it compared to previously? Yeah, well, I I wouldn't talk about it in most cases. And so I, I, I noticed that like, I, you know, the symptoms are, are a lot less than they, they used to be. Um, the anxiety, social anxiety to get back to the original, um, description is really about being in uncomfortable situations. Um, work is a lot more comfortable now only because everyone seems to know my skeletons. So I don't know that has, that's had a, a weird, maybe counterintuitive impact yeah. of like just me not caring as much and the the not caring makes the anxiety go away it's the it's the caring that i think i'm so glad you said that i think it's a really nice way to present that to people that sometimes we can invest so much effort kind of emotionally or physically into pushing away the fear thing yeah but when we kind of drop that effort or drop the rope if you take the tug of war metaphor that we might argue and you know tug against our anxiety and the anxiety might win one day and we might win another day it's really effortful but you should just be able to drop the rope and have a look at what's going on it can actually be really quite free for people so in yeah. your industry then is it so you at the moment you work for fast company tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what you do because you've done really well in your career haven't you yeah i, I mean i think so fast fast company is one of the yeah. leading business magazines in the united states um it's very it's well incredible. liked in certain yeah. it's very well liked in certain circles with tech and and the startup world and yeah uh, the, the the main focus is business and innovation 
Um, I knew I loved it even before I worked there. My wife was a big fan of it. They cover a lot right. of design and, and um, th things that are just kind of cool technology things that are happening. Um, and it, my role is, to, is as an, is the news editor. I run the news desk. So my, I get to basically touch all the topics that they cover on a daily basis. And um, it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I, um, I, 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 I am really lucky in the sense that it's a great place to work and and not a business that has these like big layoff cycles, like a lot of these companies that you hear about. Yeah. yeah. And, and they've been really times as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a rough year. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to speak too soon, but it, it's been a rough year for, for the, the media business. It's, it's always seems like the media business is going through a, a transition. I write actually a little yeah. bit about this in, in the book because I started out at, at this newspaper that the minute I got there, it was like already over. And I, I read that about you. Yeah. Yeah. So the first five years of my my journalism career was really trying to save this newspaper that really was beyond mm. saving because the business model was dead. This was the show business weekly. Yeah. Um, I left that because they went, they went out of business and I went to a, a website called international business times, which was an online only media outlet that was really fast growing. This was the era of like business insider mm -hmm. and Huffington Post and all these companies were yeah. trying to find this new model of, you know, online journalism. Buzzfeed was another one. They were yes, really huge, yeah. huge at this time. And that was, that felt like it was going to just go on forever for a while because it was fast growing and it was, um, there was a lot of money coming in. There was a lot of excitement around that business model. And it, and it too also collapsed in the sense that the ad model yeah. for those websites wasn't sustainable because it was all built on growth and scale right. and you can only get so big <laughs> and you have all these competitors doing the same thing you're doing. So it gets, it gets really crowded really fast. And so it, I can imagine yeah. three years, four years later, um, IBT that, that also collapsed. So I got to watch the collapse of two very different business models in journalism in the very short time that I had been working there. And that's when fast company happened. I, I got a, I had a friend who needed help on the, uh, the news desk as an editor. And I, I got pretty lucky in the sense that I already had an in with this person. And, um, yeah. I've been there ever since I've been there for seven years. Um, and they've been really supportive of this project of Uneducated, the book that I wrote. Um, I had to tell my editor in chief when I first wrote was writing the book, "Hey, I'm going to write a book about, you know, being a high school dropout and working <laughs> for your company." Um, I didn't. What know were how you to met with? Tricky question. Then what were you met with when you when you put that? Uh, Stephanie Meadow, who was the editor in chief at that time, was immediately supportive and immediately wow. saw the value in the the story I was trying to tell. She said, "I think her I'm exact really words were, it's about time someone's telling this kind of story.' Um, we have since covered uh, the issue of uh, college degree requirements." Um, in a lot of different ways at Fast Company. So it's already a natural topic for us to be writing about. And uh, here I was kind of living it in the sense that, yeah. uh, you know, my my uh, career journey was really the, the, the first, you know, there's been a lot of times in my life where, like, I was kept out of a job because of my lack of a degree. Yeah. Um, is it something that could lead to change? What's your ideal? So, you know, you've started those tricky conversations, as we call them. You, you, you're getting yeah. your book out there. What would you like to see happen? What's your ideal with that, you know, in terms of a, a core shift, maybe? Yeah, I think, you know, the policy side of it is tricky. And I think hopefully people smarter than me will figure out um, yeah. a better way forward. I would say, in a broadly speaking, um, if we could have a system that's a little bit less dependent on that one signal, the signal yeah. being the college degree, um, and, and a, a system that was a little more fair in the sense that it recognized other skills, other types of um, training, and um, other, other paths, other pathways besides just a college degree, um, this would help, this would help a lot of different 
parts of our society. One one issue with college right now is the cost of it. Well, absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm thinking who's and, excluded, not just maybe in terms of academic attainment, but finance. Yeah, exactly. And a part of the reason it's so expensive is because they can charge that much because uh, the, the focus and the importance yeah. of college is so out of whack right now that the colleges kind of know they can charge whatever they want. People have to pay the tuition because they need the degrees to be able to have a life. So if we had You've a system, that perfect vicious circle almost, haven't you? Yeah, perfect exactly. There. Yeah. Yeah. So if we had a system where you didn't necessarily, you could have other pathways. The college was one, but you could also have, you know, it, it wasn't solely based on college. You know, I think that the schools would have to re-examine re their systems and yeah. be, they would have to figure out ways to um, make their, bring their costs down. So they're not putting people in this enormous debt, you know. It's another uh, huge issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that like if you, to, to answer the original question, like if we had a system that was a little more fair in the sense that uh, it wasn't so geared toward college, that there were other pathways that were just as viable and that could lead to really good paying jobs. Um, I think that's what I would like to see. Uh, so people like myself who didn't necessarily do well in a school setting could still find a high, you know, a high paying job, maybe a, a high skills job. I mean, there's lots of skills you could still acquire without sitting in a Absolutely. classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you that. What are people missing out on then? So when you think of your own company, so these people are being excluded left, right and centre yeah. you know, for financial reasons or because their background has meant they haven't been able to get the qualifications to get to college. What is the society? What are businesses? What are they missing out on as well? You know, when we well, look at it from that perspective as well. You know, I think by not yeah. having someone like you doing what you're doing every day. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think that they're starting to realize what they're missing out on. There are a lot of companies now that are um, relaxing their degree requirements. Uh, Google ah. is one example. IBM, uh, Delta Airlines recently. Ah, said, so I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. Um, part of it's the conversation is is you know the conversation is someone that people have are having. The pandemic happened. The labor uh, market got really tight in a lot of areas and so they had to these companies had to rethink their pipelines because they weren't they were they were facing labor yeah. shortages so part of its necessity one example is delta airlines recently said um you can be a pilot and you don't need to be a college graduate um yeah. now they're still going to prefer college graduates but i think that you know just the fact that you they're not going to shut you out of the entire pilot yeah. pool just because you don't have college degrees so, um, because they're facing pilot shortages. So I guess, you know, what they're missing out on is uh, a more uh, um, inclusive workforce and, and possibly a, a workforce that um, has skill sets that yes. they didn't yeah. have. Yeah. That people didn't have before, because when you have a system where everyone goes through the same schools, you're going to have a sort of homogeny of the same types of people coming through. Yeah. That kind of just richness is that the right word <laughs> that might yeah richness yeah missing, you know certainly certainly diversity i mean there's a lot of yeah. um a lot of these groups that are trying to rely you know trying to open up these talent pipelines that uh, will we'll point out that you know people of color are unfairly um yeah. kept out of the workforce based on college attainment because statistically that people of color are less likely to to obtain a college degree so you have that issue of it too yeah. and so just by virtue of opening up the workforce to people without college degrees you're going to have a more diverse workforce and actually it's solving quite a few issues doesn't it what's next for you then so your book's out where yeah, do you want to go um, with that what are your next steps have you got that far yet i i haven't really thought about next steps i really hope that um I, I hope that this this book opens up a conversation about yeah. the about education. 
Um, I think there's a lot when when we, when we talk about education, there's a lot of college bashing that goes on now on one side. Uh, yeah. Often the college bashing is coming from people who went to college, which is kind of funny. Um, and then there's a, a there's a lot of people who um, are you're, who will still look down on you for not having the college degree. So we have these two sides. There's still um, some kind of stigma there, is there? And you've been in receipt of that, have you as well? Yes, I have. I, I I think I I think I would like to see uh, um I would like to see both sides talk to each other a little bit more where yeah. we can try to not use education as this fault line in our society. I I don't understand why it has to be that way. Um but every poll you look at will say, here's what college graduates say, here's what non-college graduates say. And you know, it's like say you, we're bombarded with it online on social media. Yeah. Aren't we? You know, from our everyday yeah. conversations. Sometimes, you know, generations will pass down to the next generation. This is the expectations, you know, we're kind of in a, in a mold, so to yeah, speak. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How much autonomy I mean, is there? Many people in the UK listen to this will be so interested. How can they find out more about you? Where do you hang out online? How can we find more about you? Well, I hang out at fastcompany.com. That's my, um, that's where I, I, I do still write. I'm, I'm mainly the news editor now, so I, I'm mostly editing, but I still try to write occasionally. Um, and you can find the book anywhere that books are sold. It's called Uneducated. Um, you can buy it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or um, books, bookshop.org or, or any you know, any place that, that books are sold. And uh, I'm also on Instagram. I, I try not to be on Twitter so much these days. Um, and if you're f familiar with what's going on at Twitter, yes. <laughs> you might know why. But <laughs> I got mulled up when I looked at my phone and the app had changed. And I was like, what is this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what, what, what we're supposed to call it now. Um, I yeah. still have to I don't either. It. Yes, by the time this is out and if people are listening, I don't know, in years to come, yeah, they'll knows? be like, oh. <laughs> You're like, what's so Twitter? we're talking about the social media platform where you only have a few words you're allowed to say at once so whatever it is yes. <laughs> named in the future um, um i've also found you on linkedin and instagram already so i'm already stalking yes. you on there <laughs> yeah so linkedin uh and instagram are probably the two i use the most um linkedin is very work focused and we we write a lot about work work-life culture um and so, so I'm on those two platforms. And of course, I'm pretty easy to find. As a journalist, I, I try to make myself always available. You yeah. never know when you're going to get a news tip, um, a yeah. source. Um, there's a lot of journalists out there that are really hard to find. I'm not one of them. You could email me <laughs> and I will answer it. Uh, you know, it's in a really most interesting cases. world, the media world. I'm still trying to get my head around it myself. Um, but I find it really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, I um, always find it interesting when journalists are really hard to contact. But yes, yeah, that is interesting. Them, yeah, <laughs> I want to know. Maybe I have to get another one on to see why. Why is that? <laughs> um, I always like to ask my guests. So we've had. I've learned so much today, actually. Um, if you were to leave us with one little adversity takeaway, what might that be? You know, I would say. There's a theme, I think, in the book that I didn't intend uh, to be there, but I think the theme is um, to not give up. Yeah. So I really believe in not giving up. And sometimes not giving up just means not necessarily achieving the thing you set out to achieve, but retooling and being willing to revisit your goals and um, yeah. change them accordingly. Uh, if you had asked me what I was going to do with my life at, at when I was that teenager who got kicked out of high school, you know, I probably would have said, part of me would have said, I won't be alive till, uh, you know, um, when I'm 21, because I was in this, like, there's this whole punk rock thing where like, you don't, you're yeah. not supposed to ever get old. Right. So uh, I would have probably said that. And if I didn't ever revisit if I didn't ever like reevaluate this punk rock identity that I created for myself, I, there's no way I would have succeeded at anything. And there are people who go through their entire lives clinging to that identity that they form as teenagers. Yes. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. That kind of the ability to be flexible, to evolve. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't still connect and identify with those things that are important to you. 
Exactly. And you should. You know. and I think, exactly. So, Mike, t- the takeaway, I think, would really be don't be afraid to reinvent yourself and don't be afraid to even contradict the person you were as, as a kid. You know, I think it's harder now because we live our lives online. People say things, you might tweet something and now you're like, oh, I got to stick with that because I tweeted it. (laughs) Um, I think you really have to be able to reevaluate things and reevaluate even your own identity sometimes and the things you I'm not being scared to then as well. I've just picked up from you there that, you know, we might have little barriers. I can't do that or I shouldn't do it. But a bit like with the social anxiety, lean into that a bit. Yeah, that was a big lesson for me. Yeah, I'm really glad that I I discovered that because I was probably the type of person who would have said, "Don't talk about it, and it'll go away." Yes. And I'm I'm really glad that I learned that in this case, talking about it was actually the thing that made it better. Yeah, and I'm really glad that I've come across you because I always yeah, love having this people. Is... I've had quite a few guests from the USA on. Um, yeah, but your book, I think, is something people really need hear about go grab a copy if you're listening now it's in the show notes (laughs) you've only got to click there it is nice and easy um and talk about it don't just read the book but talk about it talk about it with people let's use it to create some change i hear it's i hear it's really big in book clubs so if people want to start a book club and that's a good yeah (laughs) perfect setting because i kind of think sometimes we read things that we you know find really interesting or profound but we don't always necessarily then share that with other people and that for me personally is the magic of, of books is it yeah it's conversations look what we're doing now it, um Krista, it's been so lovely having you and i always say to our usa guests i appreciate because you're getting up super early for me with the time difference yeah um, no thank you so much for having me on this was such a great conversation i'm so glad we did it and you're off on a super big trip as well so go and have that well deserved break as well because even yes. people in the media you need to switch off and look after yourselves as well and you as well yeah. i hope you All i hope you have safe we are we're probably going to fly over the top of yeah. each other we're heading in the same direction aren't we <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're both hoping love- that the weather's going to be all right we're not going to get too stuck in the rainy season i'd um, love to check in with you and, and see what you thought about that part of the world and and, um, absolutely i would love to i'd love to maybe we'd bring that into an episode yeah. <laughs> the importance of self-care and travel absolutely i love to stay in touch with all guests that i have on um i'm not a tokenistic person so i really love to connect and to continue connect and follow what people are doing and check in um so it's been lovely to have you and yeah you too let's you, stay in touch as well no all right take care have a nice day Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you one step at a time.